Hello and welcome back to another episode of Author Conversations presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Johnny Foster. Today I'm speaking with William Lewis, who is the author of Montpelier Transformed. In 2000, the newly created Montpelier Foundation took over management of the historic home of James Madison with a seemingly insurmountable task before it. The house was no longer recognizable as the home of the Madisons, and most other structures were in poor condition. Within 10 years, the foundation overcame numerous hurdles to restore the house and turn Montpelier into a monument to the father of the Constitution. Over the next decade, the site also became a monument to Montpelier's enslaved. The buildings in their community next to the Madison's home were reconstructed, and award-winning exhibits dramatically illustrate the tragedy of slavery and essential role of enslaved people in Madison's life. Foundation co-founder William H. Lewis details the nonprofit's ambitious preservation projects and remarkable achievements. William, thanks for being on. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to be uh, doing this with, with you, Johnny, My, but just call me Bill. Sounds great. So when I'm going through the book, it's titled Montpelier Transformed. When you look at the images, the main house, I really couldn't help but think it's more of a Montpelier retransformed because it had been transformed in the past into something that uh, the I feel like James Madison and his wife wouldn't recognize. That that is correct. That <laughs> without question, uh, during the course of the time uh, since it was sold by Dolly Madison in 1844 uh, until uh, we actually was. Toward the mansion, uh, it had been totally transformed from the way it had been with, uh, and had gone from 22 rooms to 55 rooms. Yeah, there's a photo you have in the book, and it almost looks like it's a mansion from the Gilded Age, which I guess it is. Uh, the Dupont family owned it at one time, correct? Yes, yes. The Dupont family owned the property from 1901 uh, until 1983. Uh, when it was uh, after a, a will controversy, it was transferred to the National Trust, uh, and, and the National Trust owned it uh, beginning in 1984. Now, the National Trust for Historic Preservation, you know, I, I actually I worked with them for a little bit. Um, I worked at Drayton Hall down here in South Carolina in Charleston. And, uh, of course, the National Trust for Historic Preservation, uh, they received Drayton Hall back in the 70s from the Drayton family. And they decided to put Drayton Hall in a state of preservation. Uh, and it's neat to see that the house has basically almost stayed the same. There's no electricity inside of Drayton Hall. But you can see the changes the family made that needed to be made at different times throughout the house's history. Um, but no changes like was that had been made at Montpelier, and but now Drayton Hall is it has its own uh, uh, preservation trust. It's the Drayton Hall Preservation Trust, and something similar happened at Montpelier as well. Um, you have your own preservation trust in a way at Montpelier, and you were part of that, correct? Yeah. Yes. Well. After the uh, National Trust acquired the property in 1984, it operated for about uh, 13 years, and it was not having great success at bringing the public to the property. And then after some advisors had told them the kinds of things that should be done, namely additional funding, much more funding, 
and an independent foundation should be established. Uh, I uh, was involved in a, with two other people and, and actually setting up a, a what became the Montpelier Foundation uh, and then it became the operator of the property in, in 2000. And you got to, when you start doing that, you have to have a vision for what the site future is going to look like. And it's got, it's quite a vision you come up with. It's not only going to start to be how we're going to bring the house back to it, the way it looked when the Madisons were here, but you're, you're going to set the house up to be a monument to James Madison. And it's, it's going to be a constitution center. Uh, he's James Madison's consi- considered the father of the constitution. I mean, the, the thing about Madison, I got to tell you, Bill is he, they didn't want anybody taking notes during the Constitutional Convention, but what did Madison do? He 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 takes notes, which thankfully we know is going on during that time. But you know he's a father of the Constitution, um, so it's a very important site for us to have. So you have all these great and grand plans, but when it comes to these old buildings, just like at Drayton Hall, I remember when because I've gotten to work at Drayton Hall. The Powder Magazine downtown South Carolina's oldest public building. Um, anytime anything happens at uh, the old park that I work at, Charlestown Landing, where South Carolina was first settled. But let's just well, just go back to Drayton Hall. Anytime something had to be done on site, and let's say you had to open up a section of wall or something to take care of the house, it was a big deal. Not just because you're repairing something, but you get to see something from the house's history that you didn't get to see before, and you always discover something when that happens. It's almost like opening up a treasure trove when you open up a wall. And I'm just guessing that when you started to do work on the house, the house itself told you its story. Well, the... uh I mean, first, I mean, the challenge for us to begin with was how we would actually begin to do something that would pursue our vision. Uh, We wanted Montpelier to become a a national resource of historic significance for education about the life and legacy of Madison. Mm -hmm. uh, The essential role, uh, his essential role in creating the nation's uh, founding documents. Uh, And just another statement about our vision we uh, we shared the belief that uh, the education about values and principles embodied in the founding documents would be critical yeah. uh, to sustaining a strong American democracy and civil society. But then when, when we became involved uh, at, at that time, I mean, <laughs> there, there was no hope, basically, that you could actually uh, re- restore the mansion. Uh, at, at that time, it, it was because so much had been changed since... Uh, 1844, the feeling was, that, and in fact, the, one of the leading architectural historians uh, advised uh, the National Trust uh, that this should never, it should never be taken back. This should be kept as the way it was. So the, the deposits were there, uh, but uh, the vision of the foundation that, that we set up was that, in fact, uh, we would do a number of, of things, and one of those things would would be to return the uh, house to the way it was when Madison was there. And, but there were several things I'll just mention as to how difficult that was, because as the book says, uh, we had to surmount a a new number of 
of, of uh, hurdles. One uh, was one that you're focusing on was going into the, the building and, and trying to identify exactly what it looked like uh, initially. And in doing that, we, we brought in the, the best architects in the, in the country, uh, also experts across it from the country uh, in various aspects, um, trying to understand the history. And, and in fact, the people who came in uh, opened up 300, more than 300 uh, subsurface spots within the, the building was there mm -hmm. to try to see where were the doors, where had the windows been, uh, and, and where, where had the stairs been. I mean, everything like that had been changed uh, dur during that period since 1844. And uh, that was the first thing we had to do. And then, but then the second thing we had to do was to actually get uh, funding for that. Well, it, fortunately, the, uh, the estate of Paul Mellon uh, had become involved. He had left a million dollars uh, at his time of his death for Montpelier, and they started talking to us about the, the feasibility study that I just described somewhat, and gave us a million dollars for that. And then we had to talk, talk them into the funding for it. Well, it turned out that the term, determination was that it would be more than uh, $20 million, uh, ultimately $25 million, to return it to the way it was uh, when um, the, the Madisons were there. And that was not the last hurdle. One of the other hurdles, which almost killed the idea, was the fact that two rooms that the DuPonts had added on were ones that had been in a part of a settlement to be retained in perpetuity. And they and the Mellon estate said, as we felt as well, uh, we, we have to have those rooms taken off. And so we had to negotiate uh, agreement, an agreement with the Mellon family that involved 41 family uh, members needed to sign uh, a, a revision to a will settlement. And, and, then, and then we had to build a, a new visitor center of DuPont Gallery as a result of what we negotiated with them. So that all was all involved in creating the uh, the foundation for then actually going forward and, and making the changes uh, to, to the to the uh, to, to the building, which then was occurred uh, over about a four month uh, four year period. Yeah, it's not when you want to do something to a historic site and there's grants involved. It's not as easy as just picking up a hammer and going to work on on the house itself and you have a, a marvelous blueprint in the in, on the in this book about how to you know you went about doing that and also it was you know, let's not overlook the fact too that i mean it wasn't you know you didn't have the exact blueprints but you did have some blueprints of the of the house the floor plan of the house by dinsmore i believe and you also had a very nice watercolor of the way the house used to look and you were able to kind of, you know, get some idea of what the house would look like during the Madison's time from that. So those are good tools to have also. So historical documents are great to have too when you have an historic home that you're trying to restore. Yeah, also, one of the other things that was, uh, in addition to having the floor plan and the, uh, both showing the, the elevation, the outside of the of the house as well as the floor plan itself was we, we had an invoice 
it was detailed as to all the changes that had been made the last time the, the Madison home was uh, changed and, and into the form that ultimately it was the last form that the Madisons had. And, and that was just extraordinary. I mean, literally it had every nail, every uh, detail that you could possibly think of listed as to what was had to be done to really create that building. So all of that was there, but notwithstanding that, because of the in, inside had been changed so much, uh, even though we had the exterior there, which was, which was good, and it was a fairly general uh, exterior plan, but nevertheless, uh, we we still had to determine, you know, where the walls were, mm -hmm. uh, where the stairs were, and, and you know what what was the nature of, of the wood on the floors and and the, the roof and and in terms of the the shakes that were on the roof, and so that all of those things had to be determined because there was no record of those other than what what can be discerned from going back to those documents. That, that you were just the type you were referring to, and and that fortunately we were able to find. Absolutely, and then you know discoveries are made in places that you wouldn't think would have um, surprises in it, such as a fresco in a closet. Um, there is an image right. that we're looking at from two thousand and seven, where uh, you have a worker. She's discovered she's discovered a fresco in the rest in in the closet of the restoration room. Um, and it was not restored, but as to show the underside of the of the room, and you also, when you're going through and you're doing, it's you know it looks destructive, but it's, there was somebody who worked at Drayton Hall, and his name was Joe. He called it um, destructive reconstruction. <laughs> you could learn more about what was uh, what the house had um, at one time, but you know you you know you discover the initial paint layer on wood trim. That's amazing. You can go that far back. To see what you know, the house was originally painted. Um, different trust installments. Um, it, it, there's so much you know you, you can learn this way, but I don't. Know, it just floors me when you can go back and find, you know, a, a fresco where you wouldn't think one would be at. Um, original paint color is always interesting to see, uh, especially if you are at a house and you wouldn't, you would never imagine the room would be a color that it turns out to be. Uh, what we can do, and especially we live in a time when it comes to, you know, house restoration or preservation, um, to be able to know with the technology we have what a house looked like and to bring it back to what it once um, looked like. Actually, that's absolutely correct. I mean, we we were able to find uh, nail holes in the, the dining room and the drawing room so we could determine exactly where... The, the various paintings and art w was in, in, in those rooms as well as the two corridors that were there. So, uh, and, and the outline of one of the stairs to see exactly how it was uh, sloped, uh, we found that on wood in, a, in another building that had been turned into a bowling alley. Uh, and, and so, I mean, it, it, was, it just was phenomenal what was actually found so that by the time we completed the, uh, the, the, the study, the feasibility study, the experts advised us, contrary to what they expected, that we would ultimately conclude that we could actually make it authentic as the way it was when, when Madison was there. And, and, as a, and we, the person who 
in addition to calling it a possibility of an elegant fake, if we tried to, uh, and a monumental blunder uh, it did come around and say that, you know, we actually have determined uh, <laughs> the way the, bu the building was. And so, that, um, but, but it, when we set up the foundation, we knew the idea of doing something like that was a dream. I mean, we could, I mean, it was hard to imagine we have a foundation that has no money in 2000 and then starts restoring the mansion in 2003 uh, and is, things are falling into place enough for that to actually occur. Uh, and uh, so that <laughs> we at, at 2000, we certainly couldn't dream. Uh, it was a dream. Yeah. Uh, in fact, one of the things we did after having a, a, a set, do, going through and, and, and doing uh, an analysis of of a strategic plan, we, we knew we had to be realistic. And so we couldn't, the idea of restoring the mansion and, and doing a lot of the things we would like to do could not be done. So then what we did was we, we, we wrote down at the end of that uh, analysis, what we thought, what our dream would be uh, if we, it could be done in t uh, 10 years and everything in that dream, uh, the restoration of the mansion, the creation of a center for the Constitution, uh, a, a what we call a constitutional village for places to bring in teachers and others to, to be educated about the Constitution, a new visitor center, DuPont Gallery, entry to, way to the property, uh, restoration of a, of a, a freedman slave uh, uh, home. Uh, all of that was done in 10 years, which we, we just, as we said, it was our dream. I mean, it, it was not something that at the outset we had any hope that we could possibly ever come um, meet that dream. Absolutely. And so the Constitution Center, too, is a, 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 such a great resource, not just for students, but you bring teachers can come in and they can learn before students are on property. Um, too. I mean, you have a resource center for teachers to help right. them teach students about the Constitution. Absolutely. I mean, what, fortunately, uh, a, a philanthropist and uh, from, from D.C. who was introduced to my peer by one of our founding board members uh, became excited after we began to talk to him about it to establish a center uh, for the Constitution. And so he put up uh, ultimately about $10 million and uh, then was prepared to do more if we could actually expand it even further. But uh, he, so that we could restore homes that were on the property from the time the DuPonts were there that were for the, their uh, people who were on their staff uh, and, and then restore one building, uh, which would have been a brick stable into being uh, a, an academic building and, and, and administrative offices and, and, as, and create an opportunity to bring in the teachers as you're describing. We, the goal was within five years to, to bring in a thousand teachers, thinking that a thousand teachers over time could influence 150,000 students. And, and we actually far exceeded that. In fact, one year, we had over 600 teachers uh, that came for e either a few days or a week or overnight. Uh, but the idea was to use that facility that was there as, 
as much as possible. It's amazing the buildings that you know you were talking about, the readaptive use that you see on the property too. Um, such a great use of the facilities, and I also want to talk about too. Um, and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about it because I just want to bypass it. What your site did to tell the enslaved story um, for the enslaved peoples that were on the site too. Um, quite a bit of work went into finding you know where the enslaved buildings were at too. And I, you also had a Freedmen's Building on site too. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, well, beginning in. in uh, uh, year uh, 2001, at the time of Madison's 250th anniversary, we had a first uh, enslaved uh, descendants reunion uh, there at the property. And then in 2000, and we, and we all throughout that the period after that, we we were doing uh, archaeology in order to determine, you know, where the various activities have been carried out, uh, tobacco barns and. And, and housing for the, for the enslaved, uh, smokehouses, et cetera, and where their communities were. And, and so, uh, in the, so in the first 10 years, we had really kind of developed the, the foundation for understanding a lot about the enslaved, but we had, had, did not have the funding to actually do what we wanted to do beyond that. And so in the, in the second 10, 10 years, uh, fortunately, uh, another a major philanthropist, David M. Rubenstein, was convinced uh, to and became excited about and, uh, the idea of us being able to recreate the enslaved community that was adjacent uh, to the uh, the mansion, which was was a, a, a five buildings. Ultimately, it turned out to be six buildings, and and then also create a. An exhibit, a permanent exhibition in the cellar, uh, which, which tells the story uh, about, about the tragedy of slavery and, and, and also uh, how essential the enslaved were to, to Madison's life. Because, I mean, they, they were actually the ones who were actually making it possible for Madison to do what he was doing as a leader in the country. Uh, and, and, and therefore, it was not, uh, they they needed to be recognized, and we wanted to, from the very beginning, as a part of our dream, it was to have that kind of recognition of the enslaved, and that's the reason that the title of the book is, uh, the subcaption is a monument to James Madison and its enslaved community. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I really have to commend, and I know it's not just you, but it's everyone you know your partners the, the people who shared this vision and you 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 said it before, you said it many times during our conversation that you you were surprised by how quickly things fell into place but bill i don't know how many people have told y'all this but that's because you all sat down and you had a vision and it was a clear-eyed vision and you started to work in earnest on it and People believed in it, and you helped bring about this part of American history for us all to come and see and enjoy. And I just got to tell you, uh, thank you for doing that. Well, uh, thank you. I mean, it's obviously, as you can imagine, it's quite an honor to have been part of this 
this journey to as far as it is, uh, and and really to have accomplished as much as we have since uh, Montpelier uh, was begun operated by the foundation that I was uh, the, the chair of. So, what do you think's next for the future at the site? Well, I mean, they're, they're, what's continuing now is, is more archaeology to identify where other uh, activities were. I mean, the, the, that are far, farther away from the main house and from the uh, Vista Center and DuPont Gallery. Uh, and, and so there's much uh, archaeology going on. And, and there will be a continuing in, in, a construction of of buildings when we really understand exactly what they look like and do the research to understand that. And the focus will continue to be on education, on the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and James Madison. I mean, those will continue to be a focus. And the and we see that the visitors being getting much, really getting that ex, that education primarily through uh, the, their visitation to the site. But at the same time, we want the, the Center for the Constitution will always be a major part to really uh, educating people who really have a role e either in educating others or in carrying out uh, state and federal policies. Excellent, excellent. Hey, sir, I just want to tell you again, thanks for joining me today, and it's been an absolute honor to talk with you. Well, thank you very much, John. It was, I was delighted to be able to talk with you. And also, thank you, the audience, for listening. Montpelier Transformed will be available wherever local books are sold beginning April 11th, 2022.